I'm, I'll, I will um, repeat some of the introductory remarks I made last week when I preached the first sermon in the series. I said that those remarks were really an introduction to the series itself, um, but also uh, an introduction to the series itself. Uh, but, but, but very often, they, they also will serve as an introduction to uh, the chapter itself. Um, to, to, and, and those were to say, firstly, that in the book of Genesis, we, we're dealing with an, an ancient book, right? Um, it's the first book of the Bible. Um, perhaps not chronologically so, but, but, but it, it tells the story of, of beginnings. It's telling us that God's word can speak about the very first things that ever took place in, 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 the, sphere, in the sphere of human existence, uh, even before men, human beings started to, to, to exist at, at creation. That, that's how ancient God's word is. And um, it, it reminds us then that of how reliable God's truth is, because age to age, God's truth has remained the same. God's, God's, God's truth has always been there. And um, that's the that's the um, the beauty of the, of the moment of being in God's word is knowing that this is what we can rely on, something we can bank on, something we can truly trust when we when we appreciate the 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 uh, the flakiness of so much of what we hear, you know, a lot of these of what we are told to buy into in the world today, untrustworthy, are temporal. They don't no substance. But here's God's word. We can, it can, it can, we can rely on it. And, and we can rely on it all because we know that God's word is always applicable to our current situation. God's word is always contemporary in one sense, right? It, uh, always relevant for the day. God's word never changes because it's the, the word of the eternal God. It's the word of God himself, the one who is outside of time, the beginning and the end. So there's no period in our lives, no moment in human History. Historians have their historians and philosophers have fascinating ways of of explaining the errors in which man find themselves, and uh, whether we're in a in a, in a postmodern age, for example, um, and 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 we have these fancy ways of doing that, and they're they're useful in for many ways, but nothing changes the truthfulness of God's word, the authority that it has for for you right now in the situation you're in. And that's the, the reason why we must um, pay attention to God's truth. Um, and third thing to say is that the reason why we know that Genesis also is, is true, and the reason why Genesis continues to be current is because it's about Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's God's eternal word, but the Bible tells us that Jesus reveals God. It's in Jesus that we see who God truly is. And because Jesus is on the throne, and because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, uh, Genesis is true for us today. Genesis is a book about Jesus Christ. Genesis is telling us about, if Genesis is telling us about a true and living God, it is, it's telling us about his son, Jesus. This is the gospel, if you want, according to Moses, whether Moses knew it or not. Right, um, and that's how we have to approach the book of Genesis. It's God's word, true for today. But not just because it has helpful moral observations. Not just because um, we find that it's consistent with uh, a lot of how it explains 
human existence today, but fundamentally because we know that the key to understanding Genesis and what Genesis is actually speaking about is how we may come to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's telling us about the gospel. Well, this morning then, let me turn your attention to the, uh, another significant portion of the book of Genesis. Actually, in fairness, I think you, you may say that first and second chapters of, of Genesis, well, at least the first few verses of the second chapters, they, they act as a kind of overture, an introduction to the rest of the story. So, so in one sense, admittedly, I'm, I'm kind of making artificial um, divisions between the texts because I think a lot of what we're going to think about today in Genesis chapter 2 is actually connected to what takes place in chapter 3, for example. So probably it, it, it'd be a more unified whole to read Genesis 2 as setting the backdrop for what happened in chapter 3. So you, you want to read both of them together. Uh, but, but that being said, uh, the reason for the division this morning is because there is also a, a, a desire from the author of Genesis to um, explain in a way that stands out the uniqueness of God's original creation of man. You can imagine that Moses, who writes Genesis, is, is, is writing, is speaking to human beings who have only ever known sinful humanity. So chapter 3 records a story about how things started to go wrong for humanity. But here is Moses reminding the, these people that there was a time when things were right for humanity. This is what it looked like for man to be to be right, for everything to be all right with him. And, and that is a significant concern for, 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 for Moses here. And if that's the case, what you find then is that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which serves as an introduction to the book, the book of, of Genesis, and an introduction to the book of the Bible, what you have is the kind of, the joining. What you have is the, is the, 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 the juxtaposition of, if you want, the, the very storyline of the Bible. I said last week that Genesis begins by telling us about God because the Bible is about God. But Genesis then goes on to tell us about man. Because in many ways, the Bible is about man. At least, the Bible is a book about God's relationship with mankind. That's why the Bible exists. That's why it's, 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 it's written in, in human languages, Hebrew and Greek, and then all the many translations that God has allowed us to have today. Because the Bible is ultimately a book about God's relationship to humanity, God wanting to speak to man. And so by Moses introducing in quite significant, outstanding detail the, the sovereignty of God, as we looked at in, in last week, in world, and then the uniqueness of man in how God creates him, Moses reminds us about what is, as I say, the very storyline of the Bible. When I, when I first came, became reformed, when I first came across, across reformed theology, I remember years ago that there was such a heavy emphasis on, uh, on, on critiquing and avoiding what was often referred to as man-centeredness in our worship. Right, the, the Reformed theology had a kind of uh, a, a very deep attachment to stating that genuine Christianity and genuine Christian ministry is God-centered. Right, is God-centered, and so 
ministry is about God and not about man. It's, 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 it's about God and it's about God glorifying himself. It's not about us. And, you know, and so churches that were deemed, if you want, seeker sensitive or emerging churches, these are the kind of phraseology that was used. Sorry if you're not familiar with them. Those things were, were very often were downplayed and castigated and so on. And you were warned against them. And in many ways, of course, rightly so. Rightly so. Right? It, it is very true that the Bible is a book about God. It's very true that worship should be God-centered and, and, and Christ-centered. And so that, 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 that's a helpful emphasis in one sense. But sometimes I almost felt, in hindsight now, that it, it, it went to an extreme where there was almost a downplaying, however, of the way in which man is also very much central to what God is doing in the world. You see, if it's true that the Bible is God-centered, absolutely, it is true. And that the worship of God is God-centered, absolutely, it's true. It's also true that the God who is ultimately concerned for his glory has in a very, if you want, central way, in a way that you just can't deny, has committed himself to displaying his glory through men and women, through mankind. So human beings become a central part of the story because God has chosen to use them in such a way that will manifest his glory. Never forget that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is equal with God, who is the immortal, invisible God, immortal, invisible God of whom we just sang this morning, is also the God who took on human flesh. If anything, if, if, if anything can demonstrate the centrality of man even to God's plans for displaying his glory. That must, that, that, that should. And so what you have is that good theology is theology that realizes that, yes, of course, the church and preaching and worship and, and the Bible must be God-centered. But actually, if we are God-centered, we will also realize the central part that man plays in how God reveals himself. Right? We should be God-centered, but we should also realize the concern that God has for man. You know, we have a way sometimes of stressing that the Bible is God-centered and it's all about God in a way that almost wants to, wants to dismiss man, in a way that almost wants to deny how much God loves man. But, but, but that's not really the way the Bible poses it. The Bible clearly makes distinction between God and man, but think of David's theology. David's theology is, you, oh Lord our God, how majestic. You're a God who's full of majesty. And since you're so full of majesty, since your majesty covers the earth, since everything is about you, since you don't need anyone or anything, why are you so concerned with man? Why are you so mindful of him? Why do you visit him? Why do you care about him? Right? And so as we think of the glory of God in creation, Moses reminds us that we will be forced also to appreciate the dignity and worth that God has placed on humanity. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This morning we're going to see the dignity that God, the worth that we have as human beings. Right? 
that God has placed so much worth on humanity, contrary to what many want to tell us in our day-to-day, right? Contrary to many voices in our day-to-day who want to, who, who want to downplay and downgrade the importance of man and say that man is just like human beings and humanity. We're just like, we're no better than the animals of the, of the, the animals in, in the world today. We're no better than the birds of the air. We're no better than insects. Human life is not more precious than the life of, of a bug or a mosquito. And they want to say that. No, the, the Bible actually denies that. The Bible rejects that and says, no, there's, there, there is a, there, man is of superior worth when you, when you compare him to the rest of creation. Right? God has placed this dignity in us. You have much more value than the birds, says the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pay attention today, friends, and as we, we read Genesis, we'll remember where, what to make of human worth and what to place our worth. How do we define our worth? How, we def- how do we define human dignity? What is the beauty of being a human being today? What makes you someone of worth? But only in the study of God can we truly find out about ourselves. Right? And as we do that, I imagine that some of us will have to reorientate our understanding of what it means to be human and to have dignity. Some of you, perhaps the pandemic has rendered you unemployed, as it were. You can't seem to find work or, so, or something. And, and you're waking up these days with a sense that you don't have dignity, you don't have worth. You, you're, you're, you feel like you're in limbo. You feel like there's not much use to you. And you're going to find out today, you find out today that, that actually you're going to re- need to reorientate your, your understanding. In, in what, in, in, in how do we truly find worth? On the flip side, some of you, you think, you think your life is intact because you find your worth in your wealth. You find your worth in the respect and the approval that people give you. You find your worth in the acclaim that you get from your peers. You find your worth um, in... In, your, in, your, in certain talents and gifts that you have. And the Bible calls us to reorientate our understanding there. What does it mean to have human dignity, to have worth as a person? And so we, we come here then to this, uh, uh, to, to, to look at this. Now, in, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, there's an introduction to, um, to, to, to the creation of man, which is, of course, which is vital is vital for our understanding of what we're saying today. Uh, but, but, but there is a b- bit of an uh, interesting way in which Moses has structured this, right? So chapter 26 introduces the creation of man. Because Moses wants us to know, as I'm going to stress in a moment, that man was, made, man was made within the days of creation. But then there's a break there uh, when, when God's rest is introduced on the seventh day. And then after that, in chapter 2, after there, there's a break, because we, 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 we're called to hallow the seventh day. Moses picks up the story of creation again, right? And actually begins to um, develop and elaborate on how, um, on how the creation of man actually took place. So um, at least part of what we have in chapter 2 is taking place on the sixth day, right? Um, even though the sixth day was also recorded in, in chapter 1, if you see what I mean. But... I want to turn then to this uh, to this this section, and there's so much in Genesis that it would um, it, it would take us weeks to explore the vital theological themes here. Uh, but for our purposes today, I'm going to list 
five, five things, five things that I think the Bible says about what man is, right? If we, if we borrow, borrow uh, David's uh, physiology, David's, David's, um, David's words, what is man? I would say that Genesis answers it like this, right? What are we to make of man? And five things. Firstly, man is creature. He's a creature. He's created. Genesis wants to emphasize that man was made. He was created. He's a creature. And so, side by side with Genesis saying that in all of creation, man was the, is the preeminent work of God's creative activity. Genesis wants to, Genesis wants to let us know that man is the climactic act of God's creative activity, the crowning point of what God does in creation. It's not the suns and the stars and their vastness. It's not the great fish of the seas that would have, been, that would have filled the, the, the nations of, 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 of Moses' day with, with, with fear and awe. It's human beings that are made on the sixth day, the day before God takes his rest. God finishes the creation of the work in six days. And the crowning point, he saves the best to last, as it were. God's most excellent work of creation is man. It's humanity. That is what we should believe about men and women today. Men and women are, are, are superior, far more important in the eyes of God than the trees of the field, than the oceans and the seas. What, what that means, for example, in a falling world is if the, the choice is between those things and man, you pick man. It's a wonderful thing to, you know, take care of the of the uh, environment and so on and so forth. But if, for example, for whatever reason, for man to be saved, for man to be kept, for man to be provided for, the environment has to, for lack of a better term, almost be destroyed, you destroy the environment. Or, or, or if, for the sake of humanity, the animals have to be killed. You kill the animals. So it would be a wonderful thing to, to keep the animals, of course. Uh, but if it comes between choosing between man and animals, you choose humanity. He is God's most excellent creation. He's of superior worth. Right? And, and, and that's very clear for us in Genesis. Not just because he's the final thing that is made, so that it's almost as though we reach, reach a crescendo and there's a climactic point. But also because in the narration of how he is made, Moses tells us, for example, that there is a uniqueness because God enters into this time of self-deliberation. Let us make man as if God pauses to hallow the creation of this being and show that he's superior to everything else that he has made. Right? The Bible goes on to tell us that he is made in the very image of God. In one sense, when you see man, you see God. In a way in which nothing in creation can compare. It's true that all of creation declares God's glory and tells us something about the wisdom of God. But nothing else in creation is made in the image of God. Nothing else in creation is the image of God. Not even angels are made in the image of God. There is something that man can tell you about God that not even angels can. Not even the angels. 
He's given dominion over the world, over the beasts of the field, over the birds of the air, over vegetation. Dominion. We're told later on in chapter 2 that when God makes him, God breathes into him. Again, Moses pauses for us to hallow the moment. Man became a living soul because God breathed his life into him. And then God places him in the garden to enjoy the whole world. The way the creation story, God makes all of this creation just so that man can have everything perfect for him. He, he, he's that. And that just might be, you see, the, the fact that Moses paints man as special like this might just be a reason why sadly, man also seems to forget that he is still just a creature. He is the most special of God's creations, yes, but he is a creation. He came from dust. Eventually, his sin would mean that he returns to dust. He is a loved creature, yes, but he's a creature. He's not equal with God. He's a signal creature, yes, but he's just a creature. It's not for him that all things were made. It's for God. He's not a divine being. He is, as, more, as David says, he's lesser than the divine beings. Yes, he is the high point of God's creative action. But he must never forget that he was formed from the ground. This, in Genesis, there is, a, there is a stress there. Formed from the land. Formed from the ground. He's the earthy man. And so one of the things that man must never forget, in all his appraisal of himself, I'm just a creature. I'm just a creature. I need to bow to the servant creator. I'm just a creature. My life is not my own. I'm just a creature. My life is just a breath. How foolish it is to trust in man who is just a creature. He doesn't have everything under control. Oh, both for Israel and for Christians through the ages, that very point I've just made, this distinction between creator and creature, this awareness of our creatureliness has had so much by way of application for us. If we are just creatures, who are we then? Christians have always remembered to live in anxiety for anything. Which one of us, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of our lives? We're just creatures. We don't have control over everything. And so we can't worry our heads as though we can worry reality as though we can worry our existence into being, or as though we can worry our desires into reality. No, we're just creatures. So humbly, we have to just receive from the hand and the wisdom of the Creator. We're all just creatures, so why should we fear men that can only kill the body, but cannot kill the body of the soul? Fear God! How many of us live our lives in bondage to seeking the approval of men? We're controlled by a desire for people to like us, for people to approve of us. We look at certain people as though they were gods, and everyone is just a creature, full of creatureliness. And this is often the source of our pride, that we just forget that we're just humans. 
We're not God. We're just human. He has made us, not we ourselves. We don't have divine power, right? There's one who is in absolute control, control who determines our day and our nights. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a culture in our day today where people, um, it's picking up speed in recent days. It's, 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 an, it's, it's an older thing than just recent years. But the idea of, of, of manifesting, right? There's this, this talk around today of people saying they want to manifest things. Now, Prosperity Gospel Church has been doing this for decades, so someone needs to get in their props. But this idea of manifesting things, people, and I know, I know, not, not, listen, Genesis 1 and 2 is the beginning of our Bibles for Christians. It's the first few pages. Even if you don't get very far, you've read 1 and 2, right? We, we, we read, we've already been there. So I know Christians, surely you're not participating in that kind of nonsense. Surely you don't have your own silly lists on the wall and goals and all, and then you top it off with your readiness to manifest. We're just creatures. We can't bring our thoughts into manifestation. Genesis 1 tells you about the only one who can do that, who can deliberate with himself and say, let us make man and then make him from the dust of the ground. We can't do that. We're just creatures. We have to accept our lot from the living God. Am I saying that this is inimical to hard work? Of course not. Am I saying it's inimical to ambition and dreams? Of course not. Of purposefulness? Of course not. But when all is said and done, we surrender ourselves to the living God, knowing that he chooses to open doors and he chooses to shut it. I've always been nervous about when people say stuff like that. You can have anything you put your mind to. No, it's not true. God can have anything he puts his mind to. We cannot. We're just creatures. And the reason why we must reject and resist this kind of pridefulness is because there are very few things that get in the way of genuine faith, like pride. Our inability to see how much we need God. I'm so desperate. Can a man truly rely on God until he has become poor in spirit, like our Lord said? Can he rely on God until he realizes that because he's a creature, my life is but a breath? You have all these folks waiting to manifest their destiny into reality, forgetting that God can call us to his judgment seat at any point. We're creatures. We're creatures who were made for another, made to worship another. The world doesn't revolve around us. We're not to worship ourselves. Amazing creatures, yes. I, I tell you that, brothers and sisters. We're amazing creatures. Special creatures because God cares about man, not because of anything that we are. Second thing the Bible tells us as well is, and these first two are the most extensive ones. I'll be briefer with the rest. Don't be scared. Man is in the image of God. Right? First Corinthians, sorry, Genesis 1, 26 says, God said, let us make man. So he's a creation. But the Bible says God decided to make him in his image, in God's image after God's likeness. This idea of what was often referred to as the Imago Dei, the, the image of God, is actually, although you might not know it because of how frequently and often it is used in Christian uh, jargon and Christian uh, teaching, but it's actually quite a difficult concept to pin down. The, the Bible never quite explicitly tells us what it is that makes man the image of God. It just tells us that man is the image of God. But what is it about him? 
Now we can, we can make, I think, fair assumptions and fair guesses, but to be able to pin it down, and historically, theologians have attempted to pin down to this and say, oh, he's the image of God because he can, he's intelligent, or he's the image of God because he, he, he's, he, he has, he's been given dominion, or he's, been, he's the image of God because he has a soul, and all these things, they might have aspects of, bits of truth in it, but n- none of them are explicitly the way the Bible teaches this. What the Bible does is affirm that, that man is God's representative. It's a serious thing. Um, for Israel, I, I guess it might have painted, it, it might have um, uh, evoked thoughts of, imagine a king in his palace, and when you're approaching this king's palace, you saw him place images of himself everywhere. The statues of himself. And, and when you saw that statue, you knew that you were, you were, you were going to this king. Well, human beings like that. It's, it's almost like God has placed statues of himself. Now, it's not to say that God has a body like us, but there's a unique way in which man is the object of God's affection. The, 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 a unique way in, in which man is the highest form of God's self-revelation. There is something that men tell us about the living God that nothing else in creation can. We are made in the image of God. Not angels, but men and women. That's who we are as human beings. We're made in the image of God. It means, on one hand, of course, that we're meant to be representatives of the living God. People should see us and see God in us. Now, I'm going to close this sermon by saying the many ways in which that has gone awry, the many ways in which human beings no longer do that. But actually, the Bible, I think, consistently continues to tell people that we're made in the image of God. From Genesis itself, perhaps, there's a few things that we can suggest. Um, Either, at the very least, are the... Very few, thi- few things that, at the very least, are the consequence of this fact that we are made in the image of God. Take, for example, uh, so, so, so a few things to say. Because the Bible says it's man that is made in the image of God, that means it's the whole of man. So historically, uh, sometimes Christians have said, oh, it must be the soul. You know, because God is a spirit being. It's just a spirit being that's the image of God. Again, it's not what the, how the Bible paints it. It's man that is made in the image of God. And is anything that makes man man. It's actually the fact that he possesses a body and a soul. Not, if he's just a soul, just a spirit being, he's more like the angels. What's unique about humanity is that we have body and soul. So it's the whole of man that is made in the image of God. His body and his soul. Male and female. This is why Christians cannot bow the knee to the sort of ideas that you find, say, for example, in transgenderism today. That, that, that want to say biological sex and so on is not, is not relevant. And, and they want us to find the idea of human worth and dignity and identity merely in some fluid concept of gender. That's not the case. The Bible says man and woman, male and female, as God ordained to make them, is how God reveals his image in this world. Transgenderism is distortion, is false teaching. It's lying about God. So something about humanity, the fact that God made us with bodies, male and female, serves to be the perfect demonstration of who God is. There's also the fact that being made in the image of God means at least this, that human life is sacred. Later on in Genesis chapter 9, God is going to say to Noah, above all things, you are to preserve human life. Right? If anyone takes human life, their life must be taken because human life is sacred. 
because he's the image of God. God has, God has placed a certain dignity on human life. That means it's a, it's a fearful thing to play around with human life. Sacred, so sacred that God institutes capital punishment for the, those who will dare to take another human life. It's, it's funny. Today, you, you could find people on one block protesting against capital punishment, saying capital punishment is wrong and it's not right and so on and so forth, apparently claiming to have a sense of the dignity of human life. And they finish that protest, go around the corner, and they protest in favor of aborting babies, saying they're pro-choice, denying the very idea that God has made human life sacred. Human life is sacred. We have to be concerned for any abuse of it. Another thing is that he's granted dominion over the world because he's made in the image of God. There's a way in which God has allowed man to express his dominion over creation because he's the image of God. Because by his creativity, by his appreciation of beauty, by his ability to use God's world in ways that are creative and in ways that are, uh, that, that are, are profitable and in ways that bless others, he reflecting the very God who has control over all his creation. As though God has said, as God, I control everything and I'm going to display that in this my image by allowing him to have control. This is why man can pick up skills and learn skills and improve and so on. He's given dominion. Another thing is the capacity for intimacy that we have with our God. That, for example, the animals do not have. Because we were made in his image. A desire to cry out to God. An awareness. Even the unbeliever, the Bible says, has the law of God in his heart. Man was made for the capacity, was made, he, because he's in the image of God, he has a cap capacity to walk with God. And he has a capacity for, for righteousness and holiness, right? It's in humanity especially that God reveals that he is a holy God, a God of righteousness, um, a God of, God, a God of, 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 of justice, a God of truth. Man is in the image of God, and that means he should, he should, he should display justice in all the earth. He should display goodness in all the earth. He should display holiness in all the earth because he's made in the image of God. He should be telling the whole world that God is holy and God is righteous and God is true. So man is creature. Man is made in the image of God. He is the image of God. Another thing that Genesis 1 tells us, and it's, it's also it's in, verse, uh, in those verses in 26 onwards, in verse 28 to be precise, precise is that man is blessed. God blessed man. In particular, in verse 28, of course, the emphasis on the blessing for procreation. Man is blessed to procreate, to multiply, to be fruitful. But he's blessed to, to fill the earth. He's blessed to subdue it. Uh, and, 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 and God, when, when God made you and I, he made us into a world full of blessings. He blessed us. 
He gave us so much to enjoy when he made the first man. Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2 especially, he wants to stress that. You see how after the creation of man, there's this break that begins to tell us about the garden of Eden and its wonders and the precious stones and the rich rivers that flow through and how God gave him every tree in the garden except one to show that actually God desired for man to live in abundance. Now, even after the fall, when man by his sin turns God's blessing to a curse. Even after the fall, this fallen world still points to the fact that this is a God that blesses his people. People come into the world full of talents, full of potential, full of ideas. There's still so much, the amount of untapped resources in our world that there still is because God has given so much to man. Uh, he, He continues to allow his reign to fall on the unjust. God blesses man. Most people can testify to that because we we receive things that we haven't earned or worked for. Someone says, but how can you say man is blessed when there's so many people who will say they live a cursed existence? So many people living in poverty. So many people living in violence. So many people um, living with sicknesses and illnesses. I I, I hear that. Well, of course, we need to get to chapter 3 to understand a lot of that. But but let me say that even then, we we can speak about sick people because we see healthy ones. We we can speak about poverty because of how much riches there are. Uh, And so even in that, we're still testifying to how there there are people, there's men who enjoy the blessedness of God. We're still testifying to how much abundance there is in the world. And this is a cursed world. Almost like it's the remnants of God's blessings that are present. And even then, they're too much for us. Even then, there's so much. God has blessed us. He blessed man. He blessed him so that man would never be able to say that this God is not good. He showed his goodness in giving man plenty. God has been good to you. God has blessed you. He has blessed you so much that you do not deserve so that you may come back to seek your creator. Fourth thing to say is that man is made to serve God. He's made to serve God. Commentators have usually recognized that there is a lot of, almost if you want, uh, there's a lot of, 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 of uh, priestly ideas in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's, a, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's something very priestly about the whole about this, these, these few chapters. Uh, there, there's comparisons that you can make between, for example, the, the formation of the tabernacle later on in Israelite history and the things that are said about Eden itself. The way precious stones, for example, are found in Eden and then God commands for there to be precious stones in the tabernacle. The way the Bible says that God placed Adam in the garden to till the ground and the, the, the Hebrew words that are used there are the same words that are used when God commands the priests to take care of the temple. Man was made to serve his God. None of these things were he meant, was he meant to enjoy for himself. His priestly language, right? So man is like a priest there. He, he, he's meant to use all these things to worship God. Um, man is meant to use his dominion to worship God. He's, he's, a, he's a king almost there, right? 
when, for example, God brings the animals to him and he names them, but he names them only after God has commanded him to do so. He shows that he's a king, but he's a king for, he's a king in obedience to another king. He, he shows that he's a king underneath the king of kings when, for example, God sees that he's alone. And man doesn't complain, but God knows he's alone. And when God brings Eve to him, it's a very passive state in which man is in. And then he names Eve. He names the woman, should I say. He, he, name, he names her woman. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's a king, but he's in submission to a greater king. He's a prophet as well, it would seem. Because the Bible says that after God had placed man in the garden, God commanded him. God gave him a law. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, verse 16 of chapter 2, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He also had a law by which he could obey God. And so Eden is like, it's a temple. It's a place where God seems to, where God dwells and man is to have fellowship with God. And so he was made to serve his God. He was made to display God's glory. He was made to be a worshiper. Eden is not just, it's not just some, some, uh, some, 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 some pleasure house. Eden is, is not just, it's not a vacation. It's not a holiday for man. It's opportunity to worship God in the beauty of holiness. Man was made to serve God. And finally, man was made to serve man. He is made to serve God by serving others. And that's vitally brought out in the story of, in the, in the, in the creation of woman. The fact that in the garden is not just a man, but also a woman. The Bible tells us already in Genesis 1 verse 26 that although there's a detailed narrative of how woman comes into existence, that woman was never an afterthought. It was always God's design. So 126 tells us that God made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. It's always God's purposes for, for man to have this diversity. For man to live in community is not good for man to be alone. Everything God had made so far, it was good. And yet in paradise, God says, this is not good. In paradise, this is before the fall. One thing is not good. And that one thing is if man is alone, that's not good. It does not reflect the glory of God. In one sense, man cannot even reflect the image of God unless he lives in community. Because we know as Christians that God is, God has community within his oneness. God is not alone. He's the triune God. And so for man to reflect that perfectly, he must have other men, with other people with him. He must have others with him. So even though the story of Adam and Eve, of course, you can imagine for the Israelites to whom Moses is writing, it serves as a warning to them. It serves as instruction to them about how they are to express sexual love. They're not to borrow their ethics for sexuality. They're not to borrow their understanding of sexual love from, or sexuality, sorry, from the nations around them 
who according to, um, to, to the book of Genesis, according to the, to the Old Testament, we know, according to the Torah, we know would have been involving themselves in all kinds of perversions, all the way from bestiality to homosexuality. And, and, and they were not, to, so, so, so this stands as a warning against that, as a polemic against that. So, so the Bible says that God brings all the animals to Adam and tells him, and, and Adam sees all the animals and, say, and there's, a, there's a theological statement there, none of these are suitable for man. And then God brings that which is suitable for man, the woman formed from his side. So yes, there's, there's that much. God is teaching Israel about the institution of marriage. But not just that though, he's also telling them about the importance of loving others and community. I think significantly you see this in how uh, Moses explains the nature of the marriage covenant. I think it's a covenant indeed here. When he says in verse 24 that a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling, stick to his wife. The interesting thing there is that when Moses says that in marriage, a man leaves his father and his mother, he's not thinking in terms of uh, geographical location. Moses is not really saying that they have to leave their parents' houses type thing. Most likely, at least on the part of the man, he stayed around his family. It's probably the woman who would move in those times. She'd probably move to his, his family home, but he probably lived, still lived with his parents. This was more of a covenantal thing. This was to say that now your, your primary allegiance is to this woman, no longer to your family. Prior to you being in marriage, your most, your most, um, the strongest bond you have is the one you form with your parents. But now it's going to be the one you form with your wife. So you forsake. You forsake your father and mother the same way God has promised never to forsake you. You forsake your mother and father and you commit, you stick to your wife. And they become one flesh. Now, it, it may be true that that speaks of the sexual union. It, it probably does as well. It probably does that as well. But this is what's, but, but here's the thing. Moses is saying that it's possible for two human beings who do not, who originally are not relatives. Of course, this is also going to be, uh, for, uh, and this is contextual in the book, in the Torah. This is also going to be a polemic, a rebuke of the um, incestuous relationships that would have been happening in the, in, in the nations around them, of, of the perverted nations. Moses says, that's a, a perversion of, of, of how God has originally instituted things, right? Marriage is between folks who are from different families. But people who are not from the same family, not, they don't have the same blood. They're, they're, not blood. they're not blood relatives. They can come together and make such a commitment to each other that even usurps the commitment they once had, they once had with people of their own family, of their own relatives. Man and a wife, not family, not same blood, but because they make a covenant to each other to stick to each other, they now have a bond that is even stronger than the ones they have with their parents. A good husband knows that his wife is number one, regardless of how long he wants to keep calling himself mommy's boy. He can call himself mommy's boy till he's 100, but his wife is number one, above mommy, not beside mommy, but above her, right? Those can be formed. This is a statement not just about marriage. Of course it is. But it's a statement about how God forms community. It's a statement about how God wants 
people to be able to love each other, even though they're not from the same family. Because men were made, human beings were made not just to, to serve God, but also to serve each other. And we can commit to serving each other. Human beings can commit to doing so in such a way that we serve people as though they were our very own blood. That can happen. The church, as, as I'm going to say in closing, of course, is the fundamental place where this is displayed. That's why Paul goes ahead and applies this text and says there's a deeper display of love and community than even marriage. It's the one between Christ and his church. Let me close by saying this. One sense, I want to close by saying, join the church. Make sure you're part of the church. But let me tell you why. Because as I said, really and truly, you can't read these verses partially as we have done. You can make all these statements about Genesis chapter 2. But to really understand what the intention of Moses is for this chapter, you need to be reading chapter 3. Because when you get to chapter 3, for example, you realize that man is not what he was meant to be. And this is the point. It has to be clear that when Moses is writing chapter 2 of Genesis, what he really wants to say, what he's really saying is he's telling the Israelites, this is what you once were. This is man in all his glory. In one sense, what chapter 2 is going to do for the Israelites is, not, is meant to do for the people of Israel. It's not simply to elicit fascination. It's to elicit lament. This is man in all his crowning glory. This is man in fellowship with God. And we've lost that. We're not what we used to be. Wow, so man was pristine. So man was precious. So man was perfect. So man was pure. But we're no longer in Eden. They should lament that, even as they also hope. Because what God was saying to Israel as well, how Israelites would have read this is, that humanity that, that, that had fellowship with God is lost. But God is forming a new humanity in us. God is forming a, a new humanity. A humanity that one day will experience restoration from the devastation that death has caused. As we progress through the Bible, we come to see that only in Jesus Christ is that true humanity restored. Brothers and sisters, when we look at humanity today, yes, we are creatures but we're not creatures that rejoice in our creator. We're creatures who are in rebellion. Imagine the foolishness. These creaturely beings with their limited lifespan rebelling against their maker. But that's who we are. Every one of us feels that. That's who humanity is. Yes, we are the, we're made in the image of God, but we don't reflect that. Our greatest desire is not to, to demonstrate God's glory. Yes, we are made in the image of God. But we don't, we, 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 we don't treat ourselves with that sense of dignity. This is humanity. Uh, just uh, two days ago or so, some of you will know this, um, so there was a, 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 a Chicago uh, rap artist who was, he was shot dead. He was, uh, I mean, if you're not into hip-hop or anything, you wouldn't know him, perhaps, and yeah, I don't know that many of you would, but he lost his life. I think what was, what was crucial, apart from the fact that he was a, a, a young man who seemed to have a lot of potential and people thought stardom was on the horizon for him, was the fact that he, he was, he, his was a death in a long 
list of, of murders. And some of you might be f familiar with the, the kind of murder rates in Chicago at the moment and, and in that scene that he, was, he belonged to. And looking at it, I'm, I began a downward spiral that wasn't too helpful that evening. I, I didn't know anything about him, so I started to read his history and so on. And it, it, it was depressing, right, to see how many young men had lost their lives in, to, to, the, to the violence in those, in those areas, the gang violence in those areas. It was depressing, but you, you know what was depressing the most was when I realized that I, I was meant to put myself in that young man's shoes in some ways. Realizing that what's happening to his humanity is what is happening to our humanity. When we separate ourselves from the calamity that befalls men in this world, it's easy to think that maybe everything is okay. When we realize that the human race is one, we realize that whatever way you want to turn it, whichever way you wish to spin it, the human race is falling apart. The story of high rates of murder in a Chicago scene that might seem to have nothing to do with me is actually my story. Same thing with the story of, I saw a few weeks ago, it was just last week or so, that there's been an increased number of murders in France, right, where Islamic extremists have carried out horrific murders. And do you know that the story, not just of the victims of those murders, but of the murders themselves, is a story of humanity. You, you cannot separate that any more than you can separate Cain murdering his brother from Adam. It's our story. Humanity is falling apart. God said in the day that you disobey me, you will die. We have disobeyed. Death has invaded our ranks and we are heading, we're running headlong into destruction. That's what we believe. And that's why we've come to trust in Jesus Christ. And very often that's why the Bible says that we put on the new man. Because what's happening is that in Jesus Christ, God is creating a new humanity. In Jesus Christ, God is creating a new humanity. Jesus Christ, who is very God himself, uncreated, not like us who were created. He's uncreated. And yet he took on creaturely form so he could identify with us. This Jesus Christ is the image of God in a way that none of us are. Because we're the image of God by virtue of being created that way. He is the image of God by virtue of being God himself. This Jesus is the perfect image of God. See, when you look at human beings today, the image of God that God placed in us at creation, it seems as though it's been erased now. It's been wiped away. But not this Jesus. He is the image of God forever. This Jesus Christ, who the Bible says he has every blessing with him. You see, today, although it's true that God has blessed us, we can't deny that we're also cursed. We live under the curse of death. But this Jesus Christ, he, he's full of blessing because he came in and he came into our world and he took on our curse on him so that he could be the truly blessed one. This Jesus Christ, who the Bible says, he always did the Father's will. In fact, the Bible defines his entire life as one act of obedience. This Jesus Christ, who the Bible says he, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and not to be served. In him, there was the perfect example of what it looks like for us to be human. Because to be human is to serve others. And Paul says 
that this is a great mystery. But a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two become one. It's a great mystery. It's profound. But he says this is about Jesus Christ and the church. I'm saying that in the first man, the first man has lost all that. We've lost the beauty of being creatures. We've lost the beauty of being made in the image of God. We've lost the beauty of God's blessings. We've lost the beauty of serving God. We're far from him. We've lost the beauty of serving men. We're heading towards destruction. But here comes Jesus Christ. He is the second Adam, the last Adam. He is the new humanity. And in him, God, is rest- God has restored the image of his image for, 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 for humanity. In him, God has beautified his creatures. In him, God has given all the blessings that we need. In him, we have perfect fellowship with God. In him, we can have peace with men. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. And Paul says... There is a union between Jesus Christ and the church that is as profound, even more profound than the union of marriage. What does that mean? That means that it's in the church of God where new humanity is being displayed. In the church of God. So let me say these things to you, brothers and sisters. If you are not in Jesus Christ, you belong to the old humanity. That old humanity is a cursed one. It's wasting away. You've seen, you've seen from what I've said to you this morning that you are not what you're meant to be. You've seen that there is so much of you which is not, which is not, is not dignified. There's so much of you uh, that, that, is, that is broken. Only in Jesus Christ is there true humanity. The Bible says that in Jesus Christ, we're now being renewed This new humanity is being formed. Those who trust in Jesus Christ, they put on a new self created to be like God in righteousness and in holiness. The writer to the Hebrews says one day that Jesus Christ is going to put all creation under his feet. So even now, although the physical creation might still look like it's fighting man, it's warring man, there's still sickness in the world. There's still diseases in the world, but we know that Jesus Christ is on the throne. And one day, everything is going to be under his feet, and he will usher his people into a new creation. But there's a way in which you can know if you belong to the new humanity. The Bible says if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're a new person. All things have passed away. Now you're growing in righteousness. Christians call it Christ-likeness, being like Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be part of the new humanity. That's what it means to be truly human. That's what Adam should have, should have pursued. That's what Adam should have attained to, but he sinned. But in Jesus Christ, we have, we have new hope to be like the new man. Who do you want to be like this morning? I don't know who it is that is your, your idol, the person you look up to, the person you're pursuing. You're, you're pursu- you really want to be like this person. You really want to be like this business person. You really want to be like this, 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 this musician. You really want to be like this, uh, this, this, uh, this, uh, um, this, this, this sports person. You, you really want to be like this academic. You really, want to, you really want to be like this woman. Who is there? Who is the person? That you're placing as the image you want, to, uh, you, you want to attain to. They all fall short. They all fall flat. They're all in need of redemption. They're all heading towards destruction. The only person whose image is perfect 
The only person who, whose image God's spirit can give you the grace to grow up in to be is the person of Jesus Christ. To be like him, to walk like him, to talk like him. He is perfect. There's nothing in him, nothing lacking. You find absolute satisfaction, absolute blessing in him. Are you part of this new humanity? Are you part of this new humanity that God has begun in his son, Jesus Christ? The only way to be a part of it is to trust him, is to trust what he has done as the son of God, as the incarnated, that is, as the son of God who took on human flesh, who died for our sin, who paid the price, who realized that humanity had wrecked everything, had ruined everything, was deserving of destruction, and has come to fix it with, the very, with his very own blood. And it's complete, it's finished. And this new humanity has begun. So look to him. Look to him, confess. Confess that you realize now that your humanity is broken. I don't want to be with this world that's passing away. I don't want to be with this evil age. I see it every day. I see it in the deaths. I see it in the sins. I see it in the perversions, which I am also a part of. And I need repentance. I need redemption. Jesus Christ, I want to be part of your new humanity. This new humanity you're forming that is beautiful because it's made in the beauty of God's holiness. And can I say to Christians as well, then that you see how foolish it is if we allow anything to take priority over becoming more like Christ, becoming more like Jesus. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day we sing. That is what it is to be true humanity. The world may not know it. The world may not see it. The world may think that true humanity is found in wealth, in, in jewelry, in possessions, in, in being an influencer, in followers, in likes. The world may say that, but it's not the case. True humanity is being made more like Jesus. More about Jesus. To, 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 to feel like him, to see like him, to be like him, to think like him. To walk in his footsteps because the Holy Spirit is making you more like him. Now, we won't be, we won't, we won't, we won't arrive on this side of the earth. We won't arrive on this side of eternity. But one day we shall see him and we will be like him. We'll be just as he is. My brothers and sisters, is that what we're pursuing above all things? In a day like this, for example, when there's, the whole world is busy with the pandemic and it seems like that's the, the only thing that should take, up, should take up our time is how to survive through this period. Can that be true for us? And being more like Jesus, true humanity. We should really be humbled that those of us who are Christians have the privilege of being like him. And the same way the image of God was a gift of grace to Adam. It's the same way being like Christ is a gift of God to us. If, we are, if any of us are here this morning, listen to me this morning, and you're being made more like Jesus Christ, is a gift. The gift of God's spirit. We did nothing to earn it. It was God's grace. Give your whole life to it. I'll be more like Jesus as a husband. I'll be more like Jesus as a friend. I'll be more like Jesus as a son, as a businessman, as a citizen. I'll be more like Jesus, more like him. Because that's true humanity. And I'm going to close by saying this as well then. There's a unique way in which that is happening in the church. The Bible says we are the body of Christ. We, f we fill up this new human being. We're his body. The same way uh, human beings have a, a, a head and a body. 
That, that's a, that, that, that sort of separation that, that, that Paul is making there is the same way the church is the body of Christ. So the, the, the place where this new humanity is taking place is in the church. Is in the church. Today, on, on social media, when people think that someone is so precious, they say something like, protect the, protect so-and-so, protect Brothers and sisters, protect the church. Well, I know you say, well, Kenny, God, God's got his church. I, I hear that. But let me say in your own hearts, protect the church. Don't slander your church. Don't give up on your church. Don't hide from your church. Yearn for your church. Long for your local church. When I say the church, you know I don't mean E97LH. Should I, should I not be saying apostle? I don't mean the location. I mean those people. Yearn for them. The best way that you can serve them. The best way you can walk with them. Yearn to forgive them. Yearn to be forgiven. Yearn to confess. Yearn to provoke to good works. Yearn to encourage. Yearn to share. Yearn to live with. Yearn for these folks. Because in the church of God where his spirit is present, God is really forming the new humanity. I can only think anyone who, one, even a Christian, who... In this period that we're in, in a pandemic, you're almost, you're almost, you almost appreciate the break you have from the people. You're almost thankful that this morning you could tuck in your duvet, have your, your tea, your coffee, and watch a sermon with that, and not be disturbed by that brother's bad singing, and not be disturbed by this person who's going to want to speak to you. You're almost thankful for that. I'll say this to you in strong words. You're becoming less human. You don't know what it is to be truly human. You're not enjoying that. I'm telling you. I say, I, I say that with, with utmost confidence. That to run from the church is to run from what it means to be truly human. Because this is the body of Christ. And so let me say, long for God's people today. Long for them. This pandemic should, should be even more reason to say, how can I be in the midst of God's people? I know we can't be together for now, but I can be with them in prayer. And I can be with them in conversation and in service. And what is so precious about the church is the body of Christ. That's what's so precious about the church. So friends, that's the call today. What is man? Man, in one sense you could say he's fallen, but in Jesus Christ, he's restored. So trust in him. Trust in Jesus Christ who makes this new humanity where men have peace with God and peace with themselves. Amen.